The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot the Historian. Last episode, Tensions Rising, I talked about the rise in tensions between the two dominant Greek powers in the 5th century BC, the Spartan hegemony and the Athenian Empire. We ended last episode with the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. This episode, we talk about the war itself. But first, let's recap a bit about Pericles. As history marches on, the way we view the people who had a hand in the shaping of history changes and is constantly re-evaluated, especially in the context of the time in which they are viewed. The last two episodes of The Stream of Time, we discussed the Athenian named Pericles. Throughout history, Pericles has been viewed as a great leader, statesman, a good general, a great speaker, and a man representative of Athens during the height of Athenian democracy. The period of Greek history in which Pericles was in power is known as the Periclean Age, named after Pericles himself. When we learn about Pericles in history classes, Pericles is often either painted in a positive light, or at the very least his negative points are glossed over. But his negative points shouldn't be glossed over, and even further, many facets of the man that were considered positives should be looked at with more scrutiny. For example, while Pericles was democratically elected, he was in power for decades through his ability to sway the crowd, a democracy that is held hostage by the whims of one man who is able to control enough of the voting public to secure his power is not a healthy democracy. Another example, one of Pericles' most famous speeches, indeed one of the most famous speeches in Western history, is his funeral oration. The funeral oration was a speech given yearly to remember the dead soldiers that had passed in the last year. But Pericles changed the tone of the speech and his version reads almost like proto-nationalism over two millennia before the concept of nationalism took hold of the world. You can see this encapsulated in his quote from the speech, I doubt if the world can produce a man who, where he has only himself to depend upon, is equal to so many emergencies and graced by so happy a versatility as the Athenian. In other words, Pericles is saying that Athenians are better than anyone else in the world. That's nationalism in its most naked and blatant terms. Pericles also pushed policies that could only be considered as xenophobic, but also sadly familiar in today's tragic socio-political climate. He passed laws that restricted Athenian citizenship to those who had two parents who were Athenian citizens. And while it's hard to say how much enmity would have existed between Sparta and Athens if Pericles was not in power, it's very clear that many of his actions were not only easily interpreted by the Spartans as being provocative, but were openly intended to push the Spartans into military action. The Megarian decree I discussed last episode punished an ally of Sparta, Athens getting involved in the dispute at Epidamnus and Corcyra, an area well out of Athens' usual zone of influence. It's understandable that these actions did not sit well with the Spartans. It was Pericles that pushed these actions, it's clear from his actions that he wanted a war with Sparta, and if our contemporary historian Thucydides is to be believed, it seems that Pericles' logic was that in starting a war on Athenian terms, it would be better than the Spartans starting a war on their own terms. In Pericles' twisted logic, starting the Peloponnesian War in 431 BC to prevent a war made perfect sense. Now, to be fair to Pericles, Athens was a democracy, 
We can't blame Pericles alone in this, because he was able to sway half of the voting populace into a fervor enough to start a war. And that's why I'm spending so much time on Pericles, even though I promised to talk about the Peloponnesian War. Because the things that Pericles did to sway the crowd are still being used today as I record this podcast episode in 2019. Pericles used his charm to justify and push xenophobic policies, to drum up fear of a foreign power, to start a war. These are political tactics used by unethical and dishonest world leaders in numerous countries. And what did these policies ultimately bring to glorious Athens? Disease, death, stress, and ultimately the loss of the war and for a while Athenian liberty altogether. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It's time we start talking about the war, which started in, as I said, 431 BC. Now I said that Pericles wanted to start the war on Athenian terms, which is exactly what he did. So what was his grand strategy to defeat the Spartans? The Spartans were imposing in land battles, and while the Athenian soldiers were of high quality, they wanted to avoid a land battle. Pericles was also confident in the Athenian fleet to both defeat any Spartan threat at sea, and to also protect vital Athenian shipping. Athens itself was well protected by walls that would be extremely difficult to penetrate. Furthermore, while the actual city of Athens did not have direct access to the sea, there was a set of walls, called the Long Walls, extending down from Athens to the Piraeus, which was the name of the harbor area that Athens primarily used. Athenian farmland was outside of the walls, but Pericles knew that with a well-protected Athens, people from outside the walls could be brought in, and food could be shipped to the city from outside of Sparta's military threat. Pericles also knew that the Spartans would only go on military campaign during certain seasons due to religious and harvest reasons, so Athens would only have to write out military campaigns during part of the year, while winning military victories over the Spartans using the navy. Put simply, Pericles was hoping to turtle up behind defenses and exhaust the enemy. And to be honest, the description I've given is the most generous one I can give, as it doesn't seem like Pericles had a coherent strategic goal. There isn't great evidence that Sparta couldn't write out the war by simply not attacking. Because of the crowded and no doubt unsanitary conditions that Athens was subjected to because of drawing in the surrounding populace, plague broke out in Athens within a year. And in 429 BC, within two years of the beginning of the war, Pericles was dead of plague. And the big irony? For a while the raids by the Spartans on the countryside stopped because the Spartans feared contracting the plague of Athens. Epidemiologists have argued for years over what the actual disease was, and guesses have included bubonic plague, anthrax, typhus, typhoid fever, and viral hemorrhagic fever similar to Ebola. Whatever the actual disease was, it was devastating to Athens. Apparently, the disease was highly contagious, and those caring for the sick were most likely to contract the disease. There is evidence of panic such as mass graves discovered of plague-infected victims with very little funerary rites in the grave and estimates are that 25% of the population holed up in Athens died due to the plague. So as this 27-year war entered its early years, the initial Athenian strategy did more damage to Athens than to Sparta. Still, the Athenians were obviously not knocked out of the fight. With Pericles out of the picture just two years into the war in 429 BC, other charismatic speakers rose to power in Athens and pushed more aggressive policies. Athens launched raids and set up outposts around the Peloponnesian Peninsula and islands. I've mentioned in the last couple episodes 
that the Spartans had a very large state-owned slave population called Helots. Athens and Sparta both recognized this was Sparta's weakness, and with Athens setting up outposts close to Spartan territory, it provided a place for Spartan slaves to escape to. In 425, five Athenian warships, called Triremes, were shipwrecked in a storm on the peninsula of Pylos. The Athenian general Demosthenes established a garrison there and resolved to bring reinforcements. Even though the garrison was woefully outnumbered, it proved to be too far into Spartan territory for Spartan comfort, and this came to a head at the naval battle of Pylos in 425 BC. The Spartans attacked the Athenian garrison, but were caught behind by the Athenian reinforcement fleet, and the Athenians decisively won the battle. The result of this battle was more than just the victory itself. Because Athens had established naval dominance in the area, a contingent of about 420 Spartan heavy infantry, or hoplites, were trapped on the island of Sphacteria, which was off the peninsula of Pylos. The Athenian general in control at the time, Demosthenes, held off on action, hoping to starve the Spartans out. This didn't work out well, as the Spartans were able to sneak food onto the island, while at the same time, the Athenians were constantly short on supplies. Keep in mind, the Athenians were still in what could be considered enemy territory, even if the clear naval superiority that they enjoyed allowed them free reign in the territory, at least at sea. This created a political opening for those hoping to take control back in Athens. Public debate raged between the on-the-rise politicians Cleon and Nicias. Cleon pushed for a more hawkish approach to attack the Spartans on the island. Nicias pushed for a more restrained approach, hoping to send a commission to... Actually, it's not quite clear what the commission was supposed to do other than verify the strategic situation that they were already debating over. Keep this in mind, because Nicias is going to show up a few more times, and delay and inaction would characterize Nicias's approach to pretty much everything, to the detriment of Athens and Nicias himself. I want to emphasize a point here that might have been missed. The Athenians, a pure democracy, had a public debate that resulted in direct military action. The democracy, worked into a fervor, was both enticed into the prospect of more fighting, and directly complicit and responsible for pushing it forward. Demagogues would use the war and whip the crowd into a frenzy solely to push their own political career, not caring about whether this would be best for Athens. This tactic of pushing bad policy strictly for political gain at the detriment of the represented populace should not be unfamiliar to anyone who follows the news today. At any rate, Cleon won and promised to have the Spartans killed or captured within 20 days. The Spartan hoplites on the island of Sphacteria were attacked and many were captured. 420 may not sound like a lot, and historians still debate how much of an effect the loss of 420 citizens would have on Spartan society. What's not debated is that the Spartans did want them back, and rather than open up opportunity for diplomatic actions to end this war, this actually emboldened the Athenians. By this time in 425, the war had been going on for six years. The Athenians had lost dearly by then, and were very likely starting to hit the point in many long wars where they felt the need to continue the war until they had something good to show for it. Simply having peace wouldn't be enough at this point. This was far from the last time in history that the fallacy of sunk costs would cause a war to go on far longer than anyone initially anticipated, and longer than was, for lack of a better word, necessary. There were periods in World War I, for example, in which the opportunity for peace came up, but these were quickly dashed by public opinion, who, years into the war, wanted to see blood from the enemy. 
In fact, we don't even need to go a century in the past to find an example of this. We don't even need to look further than present day, as America is currently in a war with Afghanistan that has lasted close to two decades and has no end in sight. There don't even seem to be clear strategic goals at this point, if there ever were any. So the fighting continued over the next few years. The Athenians initially had the upper hand, but the tides turned after some losses of battles and land. Notably, the city of Amphipolis was captured by a particularly successful Spartan commander named Brasidas. Incidentally, the capture of Amphipolis is important to our historian Thucydides. Thucydides was a general in the Athenian army and was dispatched to protect Amphipolis from Spartan invasion. He arrived too late and for this was exiled for 20 years. However, because of this, he ended up in Spartan territory as a guest and was able to witness the war from both sides. And while he claims that he started his history when the war broke out, there is no doubt that it wouldn't have been as rich with political science as it has ended up if Thucydides was not exiled and only witnessed the war from the Athenian perspective. At any rate, Athens made an unsuccessful attempt to reclaim Amphipolis, which resulted in an Athenian defeat, as well as the death of Cleon. According to Thucydides, hundreds of Athenians were killed, while less than 10 Spartans were killed in the battle, although Brasidas, who was at the head of his troops, was one of the Spartan casualties in the battle. By 421, both sides retired, and with the warhawks of Cleon on the Athenian side and Brasidas on the Spartan side both killed on the battlefield, the way was open for peace. Remember Nicias? Remember when I said that Nicias had a tendency to lack commitment and put forward half measures? Well, the fact that the peace was brokered came to be known as the Peace of Nicias should give some indication as to how successful this peace ended up actually being. The truce known as the Peace of Nicias was supposed to last 50 years, but there were some big problems with it. First of all, the Peace of Nicias didn't do much more than to restore the situation before the war started. It didn't resolve any of the issues that led to the war in the first place. With a couple exceptions, each side would effectively be restored the territory it had before the war started. But again, this was the situation that led to the tensions that started the war in the first place. City-states that didn't want to be under Athenian control still didn't want to be under Athenian control. Second, neither the Spartans nor the Athenians had strong leadership at this point. For the Spartans, this resulted in difficulties enforcing the truce on some of the smaller city-states. For democratic Athens, it opened the way for demagogues to sway the voting populace to their personal desires. And finally, Athens' primary goal of getting back Amphipolis was contradicted by a clause in the treaty that allowed Amphipolis to slip out of the grasp of Athens. Basically, the treaty was effectively broken from the start. So by 420, tensions had already boiled over explosively. It seems that Athens had begun making allies with city-states that were strategically threatening to Sparta. Sparta, seeing the threat, amassed a large army, and in 418, the largest battle of the Peloponnesian War, the Battle of Mantinea, resulted in a decisive Spartan victory. It's time for a gut check on the situation. While we still have to be careful that we don't get biased by Thucydides' framing of the war, by now you might be seeing a trend. Athens starts problems, Sparta responds, Athens initially makes gains, and Sparta has some sort of victory that erases Athenian gains, and we end up back to square one. It's easy to think that 14 years into the war, nothing had really changed. But in a sense, everything was changing. Athens had by this point experienced a devastating plague, the loss of competent and incompetent leaders, 
Economic Issues Resulting from the War Sparta does not seem to have suffered as much, in no small part because Athens was forced to hole up behind the city walls every year from Spartan rampaging. The idea of one side gaining a definitive advantage over the other was becoming more unlikely as time passed. We can never know the exact effect that all of these things had on society, but what we can say is that this period in Athenian history was rich with culture, literature, art, and philosophy. It is during this time that some of the great names of Athenian history were at their most active, and these names carried the mantle of traditions that we still enjoy today. To name just a few, Aristophanes, also called the father of comedy, wrote comedic plays that were scathing in the criticism of society and politics. Sophocles, another influential playwright in Western culture, wrote during this period. The great philosopher Socrates spent this period honing his questioning dialectic philosophical process, from which we understand critical thinking so much better. One of his students, Plato, is considered to be the fulcrum against which all Western philosophy is leveled. In fact, Socrates' execution by the Athenian people was a direct result of the tensions that rose in Athens after the end of the war. And of course, the father of political science from whom we gain so much of our knowledge of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides, not only wrote about and during the war, but was himself a general in the war and participated. Back to the war. The Battle of Mantinea pretty much did away with the idea of peace. And in 415, the Athenians saw a new possible opportunity to throw a wrench into the Spartan machinery. The island of Sicily, off the toe of the boot of Italy, was partially populated by Greeks who had colonized hundreds of years before. The city of Syracuse, for example, was a Greek city. Greeks from various cities would colonize new cities throughout the Mediterranean, but still retain ties to their home cities. Syracuse had close ties with Sparta and provided a lot of supplies and food for Sparta. When Athens got word that an ally Sicilian city was under attack by Syracuse, the Athenians saw an opportunity to deal significant damage to Sparta. Rallied by charismatic demagogues, in this case a fascinating character in Greek history named Alcibiades, the Athenian populace voted to send a military expedition under the auspices of saving their allied Sicilian city from Syracuse. But the bigger plan was to completely overtake the island of Sicily, blocking Sparta from getting needed supplies, as well as adding to Athens' own supply line. While Alcibiades, a competent general, was initially supposed to be a leader on the expedition, he was quickly recalled after being accused of defacing all of the Hermae in Athens. What are Hermae, you ask? They are statues that resemble something like a gravestone, with the head on top and male genitalia on the face. Apparently someone had knocked all of the genitalia off of the Hermae statues, and strong suspicions pointed at Alcibiades. As amusing as this anecdote is, the Athenians considered it a serious offense, as these statues were associated generally with good fortune. It's also in character with what we know about Alcibiades. Alcibiades is truly one of the great fascinating characters in history. He was a student of Socrates, although this didn't seem to teach him any form of moderation. He was immensely charismatic, and yet he managed to get himself exiled from Athens repeatedly, and even ended up in the court of a Spartan king in the middle of the Peloponnesian War. In fact, while the Spartan king was away, the queen became pregnant and all signs point to Alcibiades being the father. Needless to say, this got him kicked out of Sparta. The Roman historian Plutarch tells us that the Athenians loved him, they hated him, they couldn't live without him. And that's probably a fair assessment. 
He definitely wasn't good for the Athenians, as we are about to see that his proposed Sicilian expedition would be a complete and utter disaster for Athens. While Alcibiades' plans for the expedition were questionable in the first place, with him out of the picture, this left the expedition to be argued by the remaining generals. Ironically, the command went to the general who was against the whole expedition in the first place, Nicias. Yes, the same Nicias we've seen indecisive at Sphacteria, and the same Nicias that brokered a piece that didn't make it past the ink drying. By now the expedition had hazy strategic goals, and we've already seen Nicias by all accounts was a problematic leader. He was indecisive, and even when he did make a decision, it was usually inconclusive, along the lines of, let's wait and see what happens. He was also religious to a fault, to the detriment of the expedition. And yet, even given all of this, the Athenians should have been victorious in this expedition. The amount of resources committed, as well as the initial advantage that the Athenian expedition enjoyed, should have been enough to guarantee a swift victory. But again, with hazy strategic goals, the idea of what victory even meant was unclear. So what happened? The Athenian fleet and army landed on Sicily. This was not a small expedition. The populace voted, and a hundred ships were sent and 5,000 soldiers. By now, Athens was importing wood for ships, as it had used much of the ship-usable wood in the area surrounding Athens at this point. The commitment of a hundred ships was huge, and 5,000 soldiers was also no small amount, as a loss of that amount would be a sizable chunk of the Athenian male population. This is also not counting the tens of thousands of other support staff, cooks, oarsmen to row the boats. It was a huge expedition. Several Sicilian cities pledged to join Athens in the expedition. Syracuse was not ready for this, initially. But instead of using the advantage, Nicias procrastinated. Military campaigns during this time could only be conducted during certain months due to weather and temperature factors. Nicias procrastinated long enough that the campaign season was over, which meant the Athenians were going to spend the winter there effectively doing nothing other than wasting resources. And even worse for Athens, this gave Syracuse time to request and receive reinforcements from Sparta. In 414, the Spartans and Syracusans defeated the Athenians in a number of battles. At this point, the Athenians didn't have the forces to be able to take Syracuse, but they were also still in a defensible position. The whole expedition really wasn't a very good idea in the first place. Athens was taking the war outside of its range of influence and risked a lot for it. Nevertheless, Athenian forces were still in a position at this point that they could have arranged an evacuation of Athenian forces and assets. This is what Nicias should have done. Remember, Nicias was against the expedition in the first place, convinced that there was no way the populace would commit more resources to a bad idea, and again held back by an inability to commit. He sent word back to Athens to either cancel the expedition and evacuate, or send more reinforcements. The populace voted to send the reinforcements, and they didn't hold back. The reinforcements in ships and soldiers numbered about what was sent out in the initial expedition, which was already a huge commitment of resources. Athens was now taking a huge risk, not only to the success of the expedition, but to its own existence by committing so many resources to a faraway land that it didn't have much business being in at the first place. At any rate, all was not lost yet, and the Athenian reinforcements under the general Demosthenes arrived more or less intact after some scuffles with Syracusan ships. 
Demosthenes, you may remember, was another general involved in the island of Sphacteria incident, but he was also generally one of the more competent generals in Athenian history. Initially, he tried a night raid against Syracusan defensive fortifications, and after initially succeeding, was pushed back and lost some of his forces. This was basically the last chance the Athenians had to salvage what they had left. Demosthenes linked up with Nicias and pushed for an immediate evacuation of the entire expedition, both to protect the tens of thousands of soldiers still alive, and also to go back and protect Athens and the surrounding area, Attica, from invasion. It should also be noted that by now there were many dead, injured, and ill. The injured and ill, besides a humanitarian problem, represented even bigger resource problems, as they required more manpower to care for them. When more Spartan reinforcements arrived, Nicias reluctantly agreed to an evacuation. On August 28th, 413, as the Athenians were preparing to leave Sicily, there was a lunar eclipse. You might remember that Nicias, according to Thucydides, was very religious. When Nicias saw the lunar eclipse, he asked the priests what to do. He agreed to their suggestion, which was to wait and do nothing for another 27 days. Naturally, the Syracusans used this time and attacked Athenian ships in the harbor. While there were still many ships left, the Athenians had another problem. The Syracusans had blockaded the harbor and prevented any Athenian ships from escape. The Athenians made a couple attempts to push out and both sides lost many ships, but in the end, Nicias and Demosthenes couldn't convince the Athenian soldiers to board the ships again. The decision was made to try to retreat by land instead of sea. But even this went disastrously, as spies for Syracuse planted false information about roadblocks, further confusing the situation, and ironically giving the Syracusans time to set up actual roadblocks. By September 13, it's clear the Athenians were desperate, as they tragically left behind the sick and wounded. In fact, at this point, it was an unorganized, panicked route, as the Syracusans and Spartans had managed to burn the Athenian ships on shore. The Athenians ran inland, but were constantly harassed, and eventually the ones that weren't run down surrendered to the Syracusans. Demosthenes and Nicias were executed. The remaining Athenians were held in a quarry, and while a few escaped, most were sold into slavery or died of injuries or illness. The damage to Athens by the catastrophic failure of this endeavor can't be overstated. Athens lost tens of thousands of soldiers and hundreds of ships. When word trickled back to Athens what had happened, at first they didn't believe it. And in a classic case of don't shoot the messenger, they tortured the first guy who reported the loss until it was corroborated by other reports. Thucydides himself tells us, this was the greatest Greek achievement of any in this war, or in my opinion, in Greek history, at once most glorious to the victors and most calamitous to the conquered. When more reports came in and the truth became clear and unavoidable, a panic ensued. By now, Sparta had set up in a fortress in Decalea, an area very close to Athens. With such a great loss of manpower, Athenians were terrified of being overrun and conquered. Furthermore, Many of the city-states under Athenian rule saw this as an opportunity to throw off what they saw as an oppressor and revolted against Athenian control. Even worse, this led to political upheaval within Athens itself, as many saw the capricious voting populace as the cause of Athens' woes. It's easy to think this would be the end for Athens, and yet it wasn't. In fact, Athens would manage to put together yet another army and navy and last another nine years 
a full third of the 27-year war, before finally succumbing to Sparta. After a short-lived coup by Athenian oligarchs after the Sicilian disaster, Athens restored democracy, this time with more checks and balances, hoping to avoid similar poor strategic decisions being made by a passionate crowd. Athens also restructured its economic dominance over the member states of the Athenian Empire. Instead of demanding a flat tax, Athens would now collect tariffs and taxes on commerce that went through Athenian territory. This was more amenable to the member states and actually resulted in more money for Athens. Athens would even win a battle or two against the Spartans over the next nine years. What Athens did not count on from the beginning of the war until the end was that Sparta could beat Athens at its own game. I've mentioned in the past episodes of the Stream of Time that Athens thought of Sparta as uneducated brutes who weren't capable of changing or adapting. This almost decade, period of nine years, would see a number of naval battles between Athens and Sparta, some of which Athens would win. But in 405 BC, that came to an end at the Battle of Aegospotami. The Spartan general and acting naval commander Lysander used strategy to completely crush the Athenian navy. The Athenians lost a whopping 168 ships, with only 12 escaping. Three to 4,000 Athenian sailors were captured. Athens was cut off, and not wanting to face another siege causing starvation and plague, surrendered to Sparta in 404 BC, ending the war. Let that sink in for a moment. After 27 years, whole lifetimes for some people and multiple generations of children, the war was over. Sparta would not destroy the city, as I've mentioned that Greek cities tended to have a fair amount of respect for each other. But Sparta did tear down all of Athenian walls, including the long walls leading to the port, the Piraeus. Sparta took over the Athenian Empire and installed 30 tyrants to control Athens and halt democracy. The 30 tyrants killed over a thousand Athenian citizens without trial, confiscated property, and needless to say, were very much hated. So it's no surprise that they only lasted eight months before getting kicked out. What is somewhat surprising is that Athens announced an amnesty for most of what we would call in modern day collaborators. While the 30 and their direct associates did not receive amnesty, thousands did and Athens went the path of trying to rebuild and understand what Athens without an Athenian empire would mean. Athens would never regain the political empire that it had, but it would rebuild itself as a powerful economic center. Then again, this would all change when the Greek world was again united against a single threat, a man we know as Philip II of Macedon, and lost, only to see his son change the entire western and part of the eastern world forever but the story of Alexander the Great is definitely a story for another day. Okay, war is over. You've gotten to hear the epilogue, and maybe you're rightly wondering what the point of all this was. Well, besides the fact that the Peloponnesian War makes for an interesting story. There are a few reasons to study the Peloponnesian War, and like a lot of history, we often see it through the lens in which we live. Military theorists of the 1960s and 1970s who lived in the middle of the Soviet-American Cold War studied the Peloponnesian War as a cautionary example of a Cold War that turned hot and the ramifications of that. But as I mentioned earlier, I write and read this podcast in 2019, and there are some lessons we can learn that apply directly to modern-day so-called democratic nations that are currently in danger of nationalistic tendencies driving them towards the same sort of mistakes that the Athenian populace made. 
mistakes that had tragic and devastating consequences for everyone involved, including the Athenians. As the war went on, both sides became more vicious, and there were points where the Athenian populace voted to have whole male populations of cities put to death, only to reverse the vote at the last minute. The results of the war was massive loss of life and supplies. One can only imagine the amount of trees that were sunk to the bottom of the sea over the course of the war. Plague, starvation, executions, animosity that even led to the trial and death of Socrates, who had the misfortune of being a teacher of one of the thirty tyrants. The war was kicked off by nationalist tendencies that Pericles, who is considered the least bad of the leaders in the war, put forward in his policies and in his speeches. As the war went on, the populace was only further wound up and swayed by the most charismatic speakers who had their own personal best interest in mind, not those of the populace. And the populace bought it. The crowd would be swayed by the people who said what they wanted to hear, not who said what they needed to hear. And the populace paid dearly for its nationalist hubris and gained nothing for it. If the parallels aren't clear in modern-day democratic states such as America or Britain, then one need only open the newspaper to see how quote-unquote leadership has been overrun by violent, racist demagogues saying what the populace wants to hear, pushing nationalist ideas, when it has been shown time and again that nationalist ideas are destructive and pointless, and that globalism has been shown to be constructive and helpful both economically and humanistically. There is nothing special about these demagogues, as history has shown time and again. But there is also, like everything in history, nothing inevitable about their return. While we still live in nations where we can vote, we can recognize these criminals for who they are, and for the literally ancient techniques of hatred that they try to employ only for their own gain, and understand that they are only leading us to our own destruction. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.